early this morning, I was out walking my dog, took Moose for a walk. I walk him every morning, and I need to do so before I, I left to come here to the church. And so just finishing up our walk, and I bumped into one of our neighbors who was out walking his dog, and he wanted to chat it up, right? Which normally I'm very open to. I'm cool with that, but I was in a hurry. I needed to get here. And so I had to interrupt him just shortly into our conversation and say, Bob, I'd love to talk, but I got to work this morning, and I, I got to go. And his response was, oh, I'm so sorry you have to work on Sunday mornings. And I was like, I feel the same way, Bob, sometimes, <laughs> right? You know, no, actually what I thought was, I don't think Bob knows what I do for a living, right? You know what I mean? So I turned back around and said, Bob, do you know what I do for a living? And he was like, I have no idea. And I said, well, I'm pastor of a church just down the road. And his response was, oh, I'm sorry. He said the exact same thing when he found out I had to work on Sunday mornings and then when he found out what I did. And then he was embarrassed when he realized what he said. I don't think he really meant to say that, but truth is some days I feel like that, you know, like <laughs> no one's more sorry than me, you know, but got to deal with it sometimes. That's life. All right. Being a preacher, being a pastor, you learn something real quick if you're true to God's word, okay? And it's this, that sometimes it's the preacher's job to comfort the afflicted. But sometimes it's the preacher's job to afflict the comfortable. Do you catch the difference? Because that's what God's word does, and that's a preacher's responsibility. Oftentimes, my responsibility is to comfort the afflicted, but there's times where what I need to do is afflict the comfortable. And so understand that this morning, that's kind of our structure for our teaching. All right, that there's going to be comforting truth and then there's going to be some hard truth. Uh, you're going to experience me giving you a sweet, gentle little peck on your cheek. And then the very next minute, you're going to feel my shoe in a place that you're not going to enjoy it, okay? <laughs> All right, because that's the role of God's word. Isn't that what God's word does to us? It comforts us and encourages us, but other times, it's like, oh, that wasn't all that pleasant. It was necessary. It was important. It was true, but that wasn't necessarily enjoyable. So anyway, that's where we're at. That's our structure for our time together this morning. And what we're doing today is we're looking at the values we embrace as a church. A compass gives direction so you don't lose your way. And our church has certain things that give us direction. So we determine what kind of church are we going to be? How are we going to do church? And of course, our foundation is our doctrine, is our teaching, all right? That's the foundation of who we are as a church. And we believe in the inerrancy of God's word. We believe in the authority of God's word. Um, and we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, who died on the cross for our sins and was rose again from the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us to live for Jesus. And, and we believe that salvation is by faith and not by good works. And those are the things that are, are most important to us that are the foundation of what we are. But then there are other things that we build upon, principles from scripture that help us determine how we're going to do church. And see, the thing is, there's a lot of different churches. There's a lot of different styles of churches and how they get involved in the community and how they do worship. And you see, God gives that kind of flexibility. 
It's okay to have that kind of variety within Christianity, but each church has to determine how are we going to do church? What kind of church are we going to be? And so I wanted to share with you the values that guide us as a church and where we get them from scripture. And so there's five basic values, okay? Here's what we're going to cover just briefly today. We're going to talk about radical grace, organic outreach, meaningful relationships, continual growth, and enthusiastic generosity. Now, some of these values are more aspirational than others. And what I mean by that is some of them we've come to realize. Some of these describe us really pretty well, and we're there in a sense, right? But a few of these are more aspirational. In other words, we're hoping to get there someday. They maybe don't describe us much now. We're not nearly as much that as what we want to be, but that's our target. That's where we're moving towards. And so these values help us define ourselves as a church. So let's take a look at each one of these just briefly. And let's start out by talking about radical grace. Jesus told a story that um, painted a picture for what radical grace is in Luke chapter 15, and we commonly call it the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son goes like this. Jesus told the story of a young man who went to his dad and basically said, Dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. I don't like our family. It's boring. I don't like this tiny little farm town we live in. It's boring. I want to go to the big city. I want to be with my friends. I want to experience life. And I'm tired of waiting for my inheritance. Even though you're not dead yet, I want my share of the inheritance. Now, surprisingly, the father says, okay, son, that's what you want. That's what you'll get. And the father actually accommodated that outrageous request and gave him his share of the inheritance. Well, the boy took it. The guy took it and went off, and he lived a wild life. He lived wine, women, song. He had a blast, and he had a ton of friends, and he was just partying like crazy. But as the story goes, eventually he ran out of his dad's money. And not surprisingly, once he ran out of money, his friends all disappeared. And he was left lonely, he was left hungry, he was left in a distant land without knowing anybody, and he was down in the dumps and he was desperate. And he thought, well, do I have the nerve to go back? What would happen if I go back? What will be my dad's response? But he was so desperate, he was so hungry, he said, I'll go back crawling on my hands and knees and I'll come up with this great speech and I'll talk my dad into taking me back somehow, okay? That's what he hoped for. And so, We pick it up in verse 20. Follow along on the screen. It says, And so this prodigal son returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, 
Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And then I love the last four words of this story. So the party began. I love that. So the party began. What a story of outrageous grace, of, if you will, even scandalous grace, that this would be the father's response to this ingrate, to this son who had so dishonored him and made such bad decisions. I want to point out a few things from the story that I find fascinating. The first is this. It specifically says that his father saw him from a long way off. It wasn't like when he was 50 feet from their home, he looked out the window and saw him. It says he noticed him while he was just a speck on the horizon coming towards their home. The son, the father recognized him, noticed him immediately. Now, how did that happen? How could the father have seen him from a long way off? I want to suggest to you, the father had been looking on the horizon for his return every single day that father with a broken heart paced back and forth and looked off in the distance and was praying that the son he loved so much would eventually come home. And so the day when the son did come home, it, it wasn't like he could get anywhere close to the house. He saw him from afar off. That, that was the father's heart for this son who had strayed away. Now, the second thing, it says that the father ran to his son. He didn't stand there with his hands on his hips saying, well, it's about time. He lost all decorum. He lost all respectability. Because trust me, when older dads run, it's not pretty, right? But this dad ran towards his son. That was the level of joy and enthusiasm that this father had. And then lastly, we obviously know that rather than begrudgingly letting him back or giving him a stern lecture, he throws a party for him. He goes all out in welcoming the son back. Now, folks, that sounds scandalous because you look at this and you're like, isn't the father condoning sin? Isn't the father condoning bad choices? I mean, the son was such a jerk. And the father doesn't even say anything, but instead notices him, runs to him, hugs him, kisses him, gives him a party. Isn't the father condoning sin? That's scandalous. Folks, the story Jesus told here was an example, was an illustration of God the Father's love for you and I when we come to him for forgiveness. That regardless of the bad decisions we've made and the things we've done and the things we've said to God, when we come back, God embraces us with his grace. And it's amazing. God does not condone sin. Sin is always bad. Sin is always destructive. Sin is always wrong, right? But when God sees us coming back to him, he embraces us with his grace. I love this quote. In Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he wrote this. He said, grace means 
and that there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I, even I who deserve the opposite, am invited to take my place at the table in God's family. Folks, that's the best news you're going to hear all day. That's the kind of grace that God extends towards us. And you see, as a church, that's the kind of grace we want to have for each other. That's the kind of grace we want to have for anybody who walks through those doors, that regardless of their background, regardless of their bad choices, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of anything, when they take steps towards God, we extend open arms that we embrace and love them with a radical grace, with a scandalous grace, because that's the way God welcomed each one of us. Is there an amen there? Do you see that? Do you see that? That's the kind of church we want to be. And so here's the comforting truth. The comforting truth is you are safe here. Anybody you know, any coworker, neighbor, family member that strayed from God, that has made poor choices, if they should ever come here based upon your invitation, hopefully, and know it, that they will find a safe place here because we want to practice radical grace. Now, here's the hard truth. And as I was looking this over, I realized this really isn't hard truth per se, but it's a maybe more of a caveat. But here's the hard truth. The hard truth is this, that you are safe here, but the hard truth is we have a preferred future in mind for you. We have a preferred future future in mind for you, prodigal son, prodigal daughter. It reminds me of uh, the incident that's recorded in John chapter 8 when Jesus was teaching in the public square and the religious leaders brought to him this woman who was caught in adultery, caught cheating on her husband. And they dragged her all humiliated and stuff before Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, the law of Moses said this woman should die. We should stone her for being such a bad person. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus had a masterful response. His response was, well, I'll tell you what, the first one of you that doesn't have sin can be the first one to throw the first rock. And what happened? One by one, everybody in silence left until all that was left was this woman and Jesus. And once it was just down to the two of them, Jesus said, hey, where'd everybody go? Who condemns you? And the woman looked around and said, nobody, Jesus, nobody condemns me. And the response of Christ was this, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. But what does he say after that? You know? But go and sin no more. You see, he embraced her with a scandalous grace, loved her in spite of maybe some bad decisions she made, right? But then he had a preferred future in mind for her and said, honey, I love you. No one condemns you. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more more. And it's a reminder to each of us that God loves us right where we're at, but he loves us enough to not let us stay where we are at. (laughs) And so though he embraces you back regardless of your decisions, there's a preferred future in mind that we are to grow in our love for God, grow in our love for others, learn to walk in his ways, but that's a process, that's a learning process. But there is that preferred future in mind for everyone who becomes a part of our church family.
Okay, second value is this, organic outreach. Organic outreach is all about how we do witnessing, how we do evangelism, how we share our faith. And in our church, it's primarily not about programming. There's a little bit of that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not about programming. It's not about all of us memorizing some spiel to where we can, you know, launch into it on unsuspecting coworkers and neighbors, you know, and kind of just dump it on them, even though there's a place for learning the content of the gospel and how to articulate it. But we believe that the most effective form of evangelism in our culture, witnessing in our culture, is let it happen naturally within the context of relationships. That you build relationships with people and it'll just come out naturally. And I'm preaching about it in a couple of weeks, so I'm not going to spend any time here. But it's this BLESS. It's this acronym BLESS. That that's our strategy for how to engage our culture. So the comforting truth is this, you can do this, all right? That to do bless doesn't take a certain personality type, it doesn't take a certain giftedness, anybody can do it. It's really pretty simple, anybody can do it. That's the comforting truth. Here's the difficult truth, here's the hard truth. You can do it. Which means if you don't do it, it's because you've chosen not to. You don't have any legit excuses. Anybody can do this. And so that's why the comforting truth and the hard truth are the exact same sentence. You can do this. You can do this. And so we're faced with that challenge that if we're not engaging in organic outreach, then it's just a choice we're making with our life. All right, third value that we hold as a church is meaningful relationships. Meaningful relationships. Do you have a go-to person? Like, let's just say you get like a devastating phone call and you're just absolutely destroyed. Do you have a person you could call to confide in who would listen to you cry, who would help you regain your equilibrium, who, who like you could trust? Do you have a go-to person? Or would you be like, oh my, I, I don't know who to call, you know? Let's take it to an even deeper level. What if you had an extra ticket to a Cubs game? <laughs> and you're like, oh man, who am I going to invite? And you're like, I, I can't think of anybody. I, I don't know anybody well enough. I'm, I'm, I feel awkward. I'm not, I, I'm not sure. Folks, wouldn't it be great to have a go-to person? where somebody you were close enough with, you could call them and confide in anything. You could share a Cubs ticket with them. You could do whatever it takes. But that kind of friendship is vital. We live in a society where most adults don't have friends. We're so wrapped up in our families and in our careers that most adults, when it comes down to it, are really pretty lonely. They don't have that go-to person. They have very few meaningful relationships in their life. And as a church, We'd like to be that for you, a place where you can have close friends and have meaningful relationships. Romans 12, verse 10, in a section of scripture that is describing the ideal church, it says, love each other with genuine affection. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. That's the environment we want to have. Now, I've got to say, that's not likely to occur on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings, you can learn a few names and get to know a few people, right? 
but it's hard to go beyond the surface. And that's why we always encourage people to get in a small group, whether it's a, a women's quad or a men's triad or a growth group. You need to get in a small group experience where you can take it to the next level and really develop some friends. You can sometimes do it to a certain extent by volunteering, that if you become part of the children's ministry or the tech team or, or guest services or something, you know, you, you get to know other volunteers and working with them, you develop some friendships that can happen too. But Sunday mornings alone, that can be kind of difficult to really say meaningful relationships are being built. But our vision is for each one of you, when you walk in here on a Sunday morning, feeling like you're home, feeling like you're among family, feeling like you have friends. And that can take a little while to develop. That doesn't happen first time you walk in the door, but stick with it a little bit, put a little bit of effort into it, and it can happen really pretty easy. So comforting truth is this, we are a family for you. We are a family for you. We are an oasis where you can find meaningful relationships in your life. We'd like to be that for you. But here's the hard truth. The hard truth is this. Most Sunday morning only people won't last. We've experienced this to be true anecdotally and statistically, they've shown this to be true among churches as well. That if a person, the only engagement they have with their church is Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings only, they're highly unlikely to attend the church for more than a year and a half to two years. You know why? Because the Velcro that gets a person to stick long-term to a church is relationship. Relationship. You see, without relationship, here's what happens. Dave preaches two boring sermons in a row and boom, you're out looking for a new church. But if all your friends are here, You'll be like, yeah, Dave has a few off Sundays, but I ain't going anywhere. All my buddies are here. All my pals are here. This is my family, you know. I'm making a little bit of light of it, but not really, you know, because it's relationships that are the Velcro to a church. And just coming on Sunday mornings isn't enough of a Velcro to make you stick long term, and you'll probably move on. I don't want you to move on, Right. And, and it, there's, there's a stability to being in the same church for a long time that's a very, very healthy. So we want to be a place of meaningful relationships. Fourth value is this. We're a church that values continual growth. We want people to have an attitude of being a lifelong learner. A lifelong learner. One of the names given for those who are followers of Christ in the New Testament is the word disciple. We are called disciples of Christ. Now, you know what the word disciple means? The word disciple means learner. Learner. So the essence of being a follower of Christ is that you are a learner, a lifelong learner. You're open to new information. You're willing to grow, to make adjustments in your life, to never feel like you've arrived, to never have a know-it-all attitude, but always be learning, always be growing. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. And so what is this good work? Well, the good work is that when God, when you cross the line of faith, God began working in your life. He implanted the Holy Spirit within you, and he's changing you. He's making you more like Jesus. He's teaching you how to love God better. He's teaching you how to love other people better, how to serve our world. And, and so 
you're growing and you're learning and it's God's work in you. And the Apostle Paul says that work is going to continue until the day Jesus comes back or the day you die. That we can never say we've arrived. We can never say we've learned it all. That God's word always has new truth for us to absorb. That we can always learn more about an infinite God. And so we want to have a hunger for God's word. We want to have a teachable spirit. And we want to be constant, continual, perpetual learners. Always growing. So the comforting truth is this. God will always lead you and teach you. No matter how long you attend church, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter what things you're going through in life, God has committed himself. He will always lead you and always teach you. Therefore, we can commit ourselves to be continual learners. But here's the hard truth. The hard truth is that complacency or laziness will kill you. If you stop growing if you lose any desire or hunger for God's word, you are setting yourself up for danger. God's word teaches that if we're not growing, we're very susceptible to deception, for error, for bad decisions. That you can't plateau as a Christian for very long. That if you're not growing, the chances are highly likely you're declining that plateauing really isn't much of an option. And so we have to beware of growing complacent. When we become complacent Christians, we quickly become bitter and cynical and ornery. And we struggle with things and make ourselves open to being deceived. And so constant growth is absolutely vital. Last value is this. The last value... The thing we want to be as a church is we want to be a church of enthusiastic generosity. We want our church to have a rep of being a very generous church. It's the very nature of God to be generous, so it makes sense that we should be generous. And generosity is a very appealing quality. People are drawn to generous people because it's an appealing quality. And generous, pe generous people are normally the happiest people in the room. People who don't hold tightly to their things but freely give it away have a heart for others and people are drawn to them and they're drawn to people and, and generous people are happy people. So what is the key to develop generosity as a church? What's the key to you as a family developing your generosity? Well, we don't have to guess. God's word tells us the first and most important step towards becoming a more generous person. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. And the Apostle Paul has been expounding upon the quality characteristics of the Macedonian believers. The Macedonian believers, even though they were poor, were giving these huge gifts to the believers in Jerusalem to help with a famine that was there. And so even though they were poor, they were incredibly generous. And Paul was using them as an example of generosity. And picking it up, he says this about the Macedonian believers. He says, they even did more than we had hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. So understand, before they gave their first dollar, they gave their heart and life to Christ and to other believers. 
And that's the first step for each of us to being generous. Before you give any money, before you give any time, you need to give your life. You need to give your heart. And once you do that, the other aspects of generosity will develop naturally. It'll be within you to desire to bless others and to be a generous person. But it starts with giving him your heart and life. So the comforting truth is you have proven your generosity as a church over and over. ACC excels here, whether it's special projects that we present for you or just our weekly annual budget, we never want. You, you always respond. You always give regularly and give faithfully, and we're so grateful. I think we do a really good job with this as a church. That's the comforting truth. Here's the hard truth. Your money isn't enough. We need your time and energy. Among pastors, you know what's the rap of suburban churches and suburban Christians? That a suburban Christian is more than willing to throw money at a problem, just don't ask for any other time. They'll write a check, no big deal. But they are so maxed out, have no margin in, in their schedules with family and with career. They're like, man, I'll pay for it. I'll fund it. Don't ask me to give any time or energy. Is that who we want to be as a church? My friends, being generous with your money is vital, but it's not enough. God's looking for us generosity to go beyond finances to our time and to our energy as well. I'd like for you to think about that. I'd like for us all to develop generosity in all areas of our life. These folks are the values that are our compass as a church, that guide us, that influence who we are. I want to invite you to live out these values. You see, the only way we can live out these values as a church is if you, as our people, live them out in your family and in your personal lives. So think about these values. Ask God to develop these values in you and live them out 